we are now. We've been talking about this campaign and preparing for this campaign and working on this campaign for a little over a year now. Uh, and we're at a really exciting point. At the end of my presentation, we're going to get to take one of those slices of pie and uncover it because we've reached another chunk of the milestone on the way to 823,000. And there's an even more exciting announcement about that. But before we get there, I thought we might talk a little bit about um, the discussions the Vestry has had, where we are at the moment, um, and what we're getting ready for at our Vestry meeting uh, this coming Tuesday and in the month ahead. So at our last Vestry meeting, we approved our architect contract. So we have hired Stouter Architects. Uh, Stouter is in the midst of doing the final design. We did a lot of architecture work ahead of time in the feasibility phase. We're more prepared than we probably would be at this stage because there are already drafts of almost every space, everything we've designed. But we, we did go ahead and finalize our contract with Stouter. What we, we're in the phase now, by the end of this month, we should have drawings of what the church will look like, of what these restrooms up here will look like, and what the kitchen will look like. Those are the primary areas where there will be architectural change, um, where Dan Stouter is going to be designing and redesigning and working with contractors. We're also, after the end of this month, for the vestry, our meeting on Tuesday, are going to look at a couple of things. Um, but primarily what we're putting together are the criteria for bids for contractors. So Dan Stouter, our architect, will be working with us to secure a general contractor who will begin working on the space this summer. But before we begin working on that space, we've got to figure out who that general contractor is going to be. Uh, the Vestry has determined, we haven't taken a vote on this, but the general consensus, and as we were discussing the contract with the architect, what folks are really, seem really enthusiastic about. We're not going to do a lowest bid process with the contractors. Uh, low bid is, of course, going to be a factor in how we determine, you know, we, we do want to be smart and economical about uh, how we hire contractors, but we are also asking Dan to help us put together a request for proposals, a request for bids that will prioritize women and minority-owned businesses and businesses with a high percentage of women and minorities working for them as primarily who gets, um, who, who we look for. Now, that's not saying that, you know, we're, we're going to have to weigh a number of factors with bids, but the idea is that we would like to, as much as possible, try to employ people who have been historically disenfranchised. The people who are going to make the most money off of the work that we do are going to be the contractors who physically make the changes to the space. Uh, so that's a high priority for us, is getting women and minority-owned firms and firms with a lot of women and minority um, folks involved in the actual labor. Uh, who are going to be we're going to be getting bids from. So we're sort of we're working on formalizing what that letter looks like of instruction to the architect when it comes to bids. I anticipate um, with the building committee in April we'll be looking at hopefully a number of bids for the general contractor and then working with the general contractor on subcontractors because we'll hire a general but then we'll also ask for that same process when it comes to the subcontractors, the electricians, the plumbers, we're going to ask them to also priority minority-owned and women-owned firms uh, to do that work. Once all of that hiring is done and all the contracts are in place, the anticipated date that we will be leaving the church 
is beginning of June. Uh, we've got a wedding, I think, the second weekend of June, and that's sort of our, our last thing we have to do in the church. Um, I'm not sure when Sunday worship will start, but at some point this summer, probably in mid-June, we will begin worshiping here in Mitchell Hall. This was the original chapel of Holy Communion in University City. Uh, and thankfully, our summer worship numbers will actually fit in Mitchell Hall. Um, but the worship committee is going to be meeting next Sunday after the 1030 service to start scouting out and planning how we're going to set this space up. Uh, it's going to require a little bit of work. We're going to hopefully do some work on audiovisual in this space um, and some lighting before we move in. Uh, but we'll be worshiping for the summer here in Mitchell Hall while the church is under renovation. Before the church goes under renovation, the first thing that will happen after Easter, our organ is going to be pulled completely out uh, of the church. All of the historic pipework, which includes some pipework from the 1890s, from the original Holy Communion organ, all of that pipework is going to come out, and the console itself, the, um, the actual where the keys are and the stops for the organ, that's actually a really beautiful piece of furniture. If you've not seen it, it's, it's a feature of the organ video. Uh, it has original ebony and ivory keys because it was put together in the 1920s, and it, it was still legal to have ebony and ivory back then, and they're in really beautiful shape. Mary Carol Schluter, who was our organist for over 60 years, took exquisite care of that organ, um, organ console. So all of that is going to be removed. There will be still some of the old guts of the organ still in there because we're going to let the contractors demo that when they're demoing walls and other things. It's cheaper to get dumpsters once. And it's actually cheaper to have contractors remove things to dumpsters than to have um, organ builders remove them to dumpsters. So, so the first thing we'll see is the organ coming out of Easter, which means we're going to be accompanied by piano, from sometime right after Easter until the organ comes back in. Uh, the organ probably won't come back until at, by the earliest All Saints Day next year, November 1st. It's a lot of work to retool the organ, so that'll be one of the last things that we finish. Uh, other things that are... Next, next year, mean 20, 20 next year, next church year? Uh, next church year, yeah, next church year, 2019. The, the ideal date is November 1st of 2019. So it, it really depends. The big time factor there is uh, our organ builder, uh, Bob um, Robert Guile, doesn't make the casework. So the actual cases that the pipes go in get manufactured by a firm up in Chicago. And they have a little bit of a waiting list. So depending on when those cases get made, then the pipes can go in them. Then they can come back into Holy Communion. So we're, we're on a little bit of a time frame there. There's a lot of work for Bob to do in the meanwhile while those are done, but that's sort of where we are. We're waiting on a final bid from Bob Dial. That bid is going to have a few movable factors depending on how big the space the organ is actually going to end up in looks like and what our budget is. It's more expensive to preserve more pipe work. So we've been working on a, on a figure of $250,000 with Bob Dial, and he knows that, and that's what we're shooting toward in the bid. Um, it would be more expensive than that to preserve more of the pipework. It would be less expensive of that to supplement more with digital. And some of that question has to do with space itself in there. Uh, the deepest notes make, take up the most space. Uh, there are some pipes in our organ right now that are about this big around, 
and are about 30 feet long and they're all bent and they fit in there. You really, if, if you listen to a digital organ play those kind of bass notes, you really can't tell the difference near as much as with a high flute note because of the way the ear works, it's sort of like the subwoofer in your house. If you have a subwoofer on your stereo system, they say you can put it anywhere in the room because the bass notes, it's sort of a big thumping sound. You don't, your, your ear doesn't register it the same way. So we're having discussions about what exactly is gonna be digital and what is gonna be preserved pipe work. Uh, the, the best, the pipe that's in the best shape tends to be the little metal pipe rather than the big wooden pipe, the, the deep bass notes. But, but we're still in the sort of early phases. They're designing what's going to go where with the organ. The other exciting piece, which is not firm yet, but um, Emil Fry Studios is St. Louis's most famous glass studio. We have two Emil Fry windows. Uh, they were put in um, two rectors ago. And there's Steve, help me with Steve's last name. McKee. Um, when Steve McKee was rector in that capital campaign, uh, the West Narthex, where the big red doors are, was, was reappointed, and two windows were put in there. They're very abstract windows. They're really pretty. And they were done by the Emil Fry Studios, which is by far St. Louis's most famous stained glass studio. Uh, we had Emil Fry's grandson, Aaron, who's the principal artist there now, uh, here to Holy Communion, uh, because we're having a conversation between uh, the Fry Studios, an artist called Kababi. Um, so Kababi's wife owns Sweetart. Uh, his, his name is an acronym. It's Creative Black Artist something something. Uh, but Kababi's a, a famous African-American painter in St. Louis. Kababi has never done stained glass before. The Fry Company has never worked with a black artist before. So we are working right now to see if Kababi can do a design that will fit the Fry specifications so that we can have the windows designed. If so, we'll have the first Kababi windows um, of any church in the country. Uh, but it's exciting because it's a local black artist and it'll be the first time a famous St. Louis stained glass studio works with a black artist. Um, so, so that's not totally firm yet. We still have to make sure that the artists can get along and anybody who's worked with artists knows. That's, that's betting. But we're hopeful. They're, they're having fun with each other so far. Um, so we're hopeful that that'll be where we end up with windows. The good news is, like with the organ, the last thing you want to do is install the windows. You don't want the new stained glass anywhere near the church while there are sledgehammers and saws and dust and all of that going on. You want that stained glass in the artist's mind and then being put together. So we may have some clear glass windows in the chapel for a little while while the stained glass gets sorted out. But uh, we're also looking at if Kababi's design gets done, there's a local firm that can print uh, stained glass on acrylic and hang it on the clear glass. So we may put temporary decals up on the windows that'll look like the stained glass while the stained glass gets fabricated so that we're not looking into our neighbor's bathroom. Because um, that chapel looks right at the neighbor's house. Um, other things, I, I said at the 8 o'clock service, but you may have noticed on your way in today, there is a pew currently sitting in our hallway right here. Jerome and I did that on purpose, partly because it's really hard to get those things downstairs, they're really long, and partly because we wanted it to be out there for you. In the video, um, in my interview, I talked with Scott about how there was some wear and tear going on to our pews. 
last Sunday during the sermon at the 1030 service, there was a big popping sound. Um, and one of our historic pews split. And you can see it's got some heavy splintering going on right in the middle of the pew. It was two of our 20s and 30s members, younger people, luckily very spry, not very heavy, who sat in the pew when it popped. Um, and you can see how it splintered. We were glad they were spry and they could kind of get away from it because it's, it's pretty dangerous. There's caution tape on it for a reason. We took that pew out on Wednesday and we took the two half pews that had been sitting in the back for a while and we took them off, we unbolted them, and we put them in the place where that pew was. It's about two-thirds of the way back on the pulpit side. If you go in the sanctuary today, you can go sit in those pews. You can see what it will be like um, to look at the pews. I'll pull up. Um, in the brochure, so here's our campaign brochure. You can see the artist's rendering of the space. Once it downloads, I'll show it to you. But we're aiming for about half of the seating in the church being pews, being our historic pews, and about half of the seating of the church being the chairs. Uh, that half and half mix is based on a couple of things. We need to know, and, and there's things we don't know. We don't know until we get the pews out and until we get them to a woodworker workshop what kind of shape they're in. Uh, the problem with the pews, why they're, they're kind of falling apart, why that weakness exists, is because these pews bolted into the ground have, are really, really long. It's long stretches of wood. Um, and anything, anybody who knows something about physics can tell you the longer of, a, of an arm you create, um, if you put force on the end of it, it, it multiplies the force. It's called a lever bar. These pews are really, really long, and bolting to the floor means that you create a tremendous amount of force uh, along the length of the wood, and that's what's causing the pews to, to have problems. It's what made the pews snap. It didn't take a really heavy person to do it. It just took a little bit of leaning back, and it snapped, because the pews are also over 100 years old, and um, the wood is drying out. So the goal is to preserve as many of the pews as we can, but we won't know how many exactly until they're in the woodworker's shop and until they get to take them apart. The idea is, scrolling down to where the um, design lives. There it is. So you can see it looks very similar. The idea is to take the current pews and to cut them down to half length. Uh, that's because you don't want to create that long lever arm. Um, and it makes it a lot easier to move them. The idea being that if the space becomes flexible, you could um, line the walls with the pews and have a continuous bench. And the chairs stack, and so they could be stacked and move out. And you could have a totally open room if you wanted to have a yoga class, or if a mosque wanted to use our space, or uh, you could do a lot of stuff if you could open the room totally. You just have one bench of pews around the walls. What it means, though, is because we'll need so many of the ends of the pews, we may have a few pews to sell or to auction off, but we don't know how many because we'll need a lot of the ends of the pews to create the half pews. So I've had a number of people who have asked me if we'll have pews for sale, and the answer is I don't know. Um, my guess is we might have a few, but it'll be a really limited number. We 
right now you're, you're, you can't see the font for a reason. You're more than halfway into the space. So there will be rows of chairs and rows of pews. Those pews are also unbolted. So like the pews are right now, they're not bolted to the ground. That's actually safer for the pews because part of the reason you can create all that force in the middle of the pew is because it's bolted to the ground. So by having them unbolted, they do rock a little bit if you move your weight, but it's just like sitting in a chair if you move your weight in a chair. It also means you have to think about it. You can't just land in it with all your weight. You're going to have to sit down in it like you do a chair. But they're still solid enough. You can push down on them. If somebody needs a hand to stand back up, they'll still be very like solid enough to push down and stand up. Um, I've also been asked questions about the tile. Remember, this is not an architect's final drawing. This is an artist's rendering of the space. The tile is not a decided tile. We haven't looked at tile products. The building committee will have a say in all of that. We, we have a sense it'll be sort of like this, but somebody said it looks like bathroom tile. If, if we won't pick bathroom tile. For, uh, um, so, so know that. Randall. Michael, we're still in seating. Yeah. Is there anything to say about ADA accommodations? So um, by having the seating uh, flexible, the ADA actually, uh, and we can look into specific seating questions, but um, having the flexible seating keeps you most open to accommodate people with, uh, with disabilities. Anywhere there are chairs, we'll be able to move a chair out of the way for a wheelchair. Uh, if somebody doesn't want to sit in the front row in a wheelchair, we could get in the habit of leaving one of the half pews out in the middle of the congregation. We can move things right in the moment. So it does allow for more <coughs> flexibility means more adaptability for ADA. And I wonder if having any certain purchasing special chairs that might meet other needs for someone who's not fully in a wheelchair. Yeah, so the, the, chairs, the chairs have to do a lot. Um, and so we're looking at, actually, we've already purchased a set of 10 chairs, some of which the choir has stolen because they're so comfortable right now. Um, you can tell there's a mix of the old choir chairs and the newer chairs in the back at the moment, and it gives you a sense of how the chairs have evolved over the last 15 years. Uh, the chairs we have are wider than the average chair. They're a lot more comfortable than these chairs. I've actually started talking to Dan about whether we want to order them soon so that we can have some of those chairs in here this summer because they'll be a lot more comfortable worshiping than we're worshiping in these all summer. Um, but they are a little bit wider. The, some of the things that you would need for an ADA seating, most of the ADA seating has to do with wheelchair specificity. But we won't be putting arms on chairs uh, specifically because it would make them harder to stack. It would make them less flexible. So, but you could also, if you had somebody who had a very specific need, um, you could put a specific chair in for that specific need with flexibility. Sandra? Um, what combination of tile, carpet, and wood will be on the floor, and then what work will need to be done to adjust acoustics if we're taking out a lot of soundproofing material and yeah. echoing material? So we have an acoustician who's working with us, is the first answer. The second is uh, we will be eliminating the carpet. Uh, the idea is to eliminate the carpet for a few reasons. One, like in here, it, a lot of it's wear and tear and cleanliness. Um, the other piece on it is uh, with the with the harder with the harder floor, it will improve the sound of the organ. There'll be a new sound system in the space that's going to be particularly tuned to the space. The other thing that's being talked about is at the back of the church, 
uh, where the font is, there will probably be some added panels to do dampening. And that's more preferable, actually, than what we have now, where the sound gets absorbed the whole length of the church. You'll still absorb sound the whole length of the church with the pew cushions and the seat cushions and the people. Uh, but at the back of the church, to have uh, most of the dampening will actually help, because it'll mean that the sound will get delivered all across the church, but it won't start bouncing back and creating a really, what they call a really wet space. So but we are working with an acoustician to, to look at those questions specifically. No, it'll all be tile. So we, we won't be redoing the what's called the chancel where the marble is now. That that marble, there's no plan to change it. But the carpet, where the carpet is now, will be the plan is to tile over that. With something that'll be like slate, but probably not slate it, itself, because we're looking for more durability than slate pro provides and a little more affordability than slate provides. Other questions about where we are? So um, one of the things that's been exciting about the building committee is the additions to the building committee as well. So um, I wanted to name some of the folks who are in the building committee. So Mark Willingham, the immediate past junior warden, is on the building committee. Susan Norris chairs the building committee as the current junior warden. Amanda Deemer, who, if I'm not wrong, was one of Mark's predecessors as junior warden, is on the building committee. Uh, and Gary Johnson, who's newer to our congregation, but who worked down at Christchurch Cathedral, and he's a building engineer for um, a lot of the areas on the building committee. Earl Bonds is on the building committee, um, and Burt Mayfield is, I believe at this point we call Burt Mayfield the um, resident scholar of the building committee. Um, he, he comes when he's able to, but Burt is, um, is our primary consultant on what were they doing in this space five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? He usually has pictures of it and at least three stories about how they changed the a specific thing around here. Um, so Bert still has a voice on that building committee as well. We also will be putting together from the building committee and the vestry and um, the uh, dismantling racism group that um, Shirley Mensa has pulled together, a group of people specifically to work on the design of the windows when we, when we get the word that Kababi and um, Fry can work together. If we get that word, we're going to put together a little committee. There'll be a subcommittee of both the building committee and the vestry to work on that because the last thing you want is 30 people to try to design a window together. <laughs> Bob? So, uh, I, I myself noticed long ago that many of the windows were, as you said, just ordered from a catalog and yeah. set up windows. But I, I would think that the main windows behind the center <laughs> and also on the south wall yeah. are a grade higher than that and that we're probably not going to want to change that. Yeah, they are. So the only windows we are talking about right now are, the three, are three out of the four banks of windows in the chapel. So we chose the chapel windows for a few reasons. One, the chapel windows are the only windows in the church that do not currently have double insulation. So we lose a lot of heat in the winter and a lot of cold in the summer through the chapel. Uh, the other thing is part of the reason we're doing contemplative prayer in the back of the church this season is I found trying to be, keep silence in the chapel is very hard because those windows without that insulation let in a lot of sound from Delmar. So the, a priority was appointing those. We've also had some water entrance in those windows over the last year. You can see it even in that video. So a point of it was practicality. We want to 
update and fix those windows and, and seal them up and make it a, a, a better space, better environmentally, better sound-wise. The other thing is those are our most catalog order looking windows and they are the most outdated in terms of the theology. If you look at it, the priests, the only priests in those windows, there's a lot of priests, they're all men, they're all white, uh, and they all, and when they celebrate the Eucharist, they're facing like this. Uh, the women who are receiving Eucharist have head coverings on. Uh, there are no people of color. So there's all sorts of sort of issues with those windows. Aesthetically, I also have to say don't like them. The four closest up to the altar are of a higher quality. They're not of the same set. The plan is to preserve those. Uh, they'll probably be set in a new background the, because they're only about like this. One of the two of them actually used to sit in these two spots. Um, so they'll probably be set in a new background. The squares and diamonds we have in there will be rethought so that they tie better into the new windows. But those three sets in the chapel are where we want to start. The other thing I really like about those windows is those are the first windows you see when you enter in from the main door that most people enter in in the church. So when you walk in on Sunday morning, you're going to be hit by that big bank of windows um, featuring people of color. They're in the chapel, which I don't love that you know, the church and the chapel are kind of separate. Um, if we do another set, which is not, not part of this campaign yet, but the next set that I would look at are the ones in the aisle. Um, if you're facing the altar this way on the right-hand side, there's sort of a random collection of saints that also are sort of catalog ordered. That's where I would go next. Um, and I can't imagine doing those big lancet windows because those are actual historic windows that were, read, were made specifically for us. We'd have to have a long conversation about that. Uh, I mentioned this to you once ago, but I wonder if you had any more information. Yeah. It's a great many of the people in the windows uh, were from the Middle East and would have had darker skin. I wonder whether a studio had any solution for altering skin color So to do that, you were essentially making the window. So, yeah. So um, my, my seminary did that because they had a window that was anti-Semitic. Uh, Judas had a crooked nose and was sort of green. And so they took that window out and they remade it. And it was actually more expensive because you're restoring the glass and you're refabricating it than it would be to do an all-new window. So I, I'm not saying it's off the table, but... Yes, to, to do that, you, you really have to refabricate because it's not like painting. The, 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 these, is, these are stained glass windows, so it's not painted glass. You can't just paint over it. You actually have to physically put glass of a specific color in. So you have to disassemble the glass, recast the glass, and put it all back together. Um, so it's, it's, a really, uh, it's a really, really detailed process, which is why it's worthwhile thinking about just making new windows. Joy. With the Enfield family. I we actually just had some contact from the Enfield family. The Enfield family, from what I can tell, didn't play a role in selecting those windows. Um, so there's not a and the Enfield Chapel was actually a chapel dedicated at our former church. Um, so the original Enfield Chapel was a chapel dedicated at Washington and Leffingwell. When this chapel became a chapel, because when 
up until at least 19, early 1970s, the chapel was just part of the church. That, that wall of glass didn't get inserted until later. And so I'm not sure exactly when that got associated with Enfield, but the Enfield chapel that was Robert Enfield was originally down at the old church. So they didn't, they didn't play a role in those windows. Other questions? Okay, we get to do something fun now. We're going to see if I can do this uh, intentionally this time, and not like a party. in the email we reported online were at $730,000. I'm also excited to announce that a donor who wants to remain anonymous uh, has offered a $50,000 matching gift. All pledges and all additions to pledges we receive from this point will be matched up to $50,000. Because we're at $730,000, that means that if we meet this match, we exceed our goal of $823,000. So if you have not yet pledged, we have pledge cards available over here by the coffee. If you have already pledged and you would like to add a little bit that then would be doubled, uh, anything we receive from this point forward up to $50,000 will be matched by a donor. Um, which means if we can make this $50,000, we already have another $50,000 coming in, we will make and even exceed our goal. Uh, so that's really exciting news. We, yeah. We are hoping to be wrapped up with the active phase of the campaign by Easter. That is to say, we will still accept additions, we will still accept pledges, we will accept additional gifts, all the way through. This is a three-year process of ingathering of the pledges, and if anybody wants to add more onto their gift at any time, you're more than welcome. Uh, we will still be looking at uh, those, those expanded um, possibilities. If we're able to raise more than 823000 if we're able to fund some of the additional projects in our stretch goals, all of them added up would be if we raised a million dollars. I don't know if we'll get that far, but we've got a while to get there. We'd like to be at our 823 by Easter, and so we're really encouraging people to get their pledges in if they haven't. Consider if you can um, stretch your pledge a little bit more to help us with this matching by then. Um, it would be really exciting at Easter to be able to say we've met our primary goal uh, and to be um, announcing that we've got more possibilities ahead. 
Um, so we'll keep updating you as the, as the weeks go on. Um, but it is really exciting. We're, we're getting very, very close. Um, and the Vestry, I think, has been doing really hard work putting stuff together because we are both pushing a campaign through in a really short time frame. We're talking about about six weeks the campaign will have been in active mode and we will have reached the goal if we reach the goal by Easter. We also have been pushing through um, the contracts, the work, uh, the work with the organ, uh, with the architect, because it really would be amazing in the first year of the campaign to have the majority of the work done. Uh, the priority is really going to be this summer getting the sanctuary and the kitchen done. We may wait to get the restrooms done until after. It really depends on timelines with the contractors, what we're able to do. I'd really rather not be under so much construction that we're trying to enter in the west door, and, but, but we'll see. It really depends on our contractors. But we're going to try to get everything done so that next fall when we move back into the church, it's going to feel like a new worshiping environment. And then we'll get to have big celebrations when the organ comes home and we have a, a restored and really almost like a brand new organ and when we add the stained glass in um, over the next years. So thank you all so much. Um, that is today's adult forum. Next Sunday, uh, we're going to change gears entirely. We are, um, next Sunday is uh, what the Episcopal Church often refers to as Refreshment Sunday. Uh, we don't do pink vestments at Holy Communion, but if we had pink vestments, and if I was someone who would wear pink vestments, um, it would be a pink Sunday. Uh, but it's, it's the light Sunday. It's the relaxed Sunday of Lent. And so I thought we'd talk about the crucifixion. Um, I, I do think it's important as, as we start turning toward Holy Week, our, our liturgy turns, you'll notice we recycle our big bulletins this Sunday, our liturgy turns toward Holy Week uh, next Sunday. And as we get toward the cross, I have noticed there are a lot of Episcopalians with anxieties about the cross. So I thought we would air some of those. We would talk about some of the historic theology of the cross, which makes us nervous. But I also want to take a look at um, some of the work that uh, Ben uh, noticed this with us um, earlier this, this year in, in uh, February, uh, the work of James Cone. Uh, whose uh, last work, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, is this incredible meditation on crucifixion and on its role today. I also want to take a look at one of my favorite theologians, John Sabrino, and his discussion of the crucified people. So we'll be talking about the cross in history, but we'll also be talking about current understandings of the cross to hopefully help Episcopalians ease their anxieties as we come up on Holy Week. So that is next week. Thank you all so much. Uh, tell your friends about the matching gift. And we'll see you next Sunday for the Adult Forum.